You are listening to Words from the Brothers, a podcast produced by the Servants of the Word, an international ecumenical brotherhood of men living single for the Lord. You can download this podcast from our website or access it on iTunes or on any other podcasting apps. So we prayed in the uh, prayer room tonight, Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is a really striking messianic psalm. Shows up in explicit quotations or pretty clear allusions in the New Testament at least six times about half of those in the Gospel of John. You probably noticed also as we prayed through it that it has close parallels with the servant songs in Isaiah. And it's quite hard to read or chant your way through the psalm without having it evoke the passion. The psalmist calls out to God in the midst of very severe suffering that threatens to overwhelm him, he says, a couple of times like a flood. And he's sunk in the mire where he can't get it a foothold. He's surrounded by foes who outnumber the hairs on his head and hate him without cause or for nothing is another possible way of translating it. In fact, he goes on to say there is a cause and the cause is his zeal for God. It's because he's consumed with zeal for the Lord's house that they insult him and that they mock him and that they gossip about him. (coughs) He pleads for God's help against his adversaries. And then the psalm ends with a really remarkable song of praise. Much like the other psalm that we pray frequently in this week, Psalm 22. At the end of a psalm of suffering, a lament, the psalmist bursts out in this song of praise. And as I read it, most of this psalm, I'm kind of drawn ineluctably to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. What I want to look at tonight is just one couplet from verse 4 of the psalm, which isn't quoted in the New Testament, doesn't show up explicitly in the New Testament, and that's what I did not steal must I now restore or then I did not steal, now I must restore. On one level, uh, this simply means that the psalmist was innocent, but was treated as guilty. And some people think it might even be a proverb. But viewed in the light of Christ's work, it's a very enlightening couplet. And it fits in with the broad typology of Christ as the second Adam or the last Adam who reverses what Adam did in the fall. So what we want to ask tonight is what had been stolen and how and what was restored? So what was stolen 
is the honor and obedience that the human race owed to God. A very familiar passage from Romans chapter 1. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, and this is really striking because in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul's not talking about Israel. He's talking about everyone. This applies to human beings universally. His invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. And further on, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul goes on further and says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. And Romans, although it's often seen as the great treatise on salvation by faith and not works, talks about obedience throughout the letter. He speaks about obedience and disobedience as a theme in the letter at least a dozen different times. And he begins and ends the letter by tying obedience and faith together in the phrase, the obedience of faith. And at the heart of all this is chapter five, where we have the contrast between the sinful Adam, the disobedient Adam, and the new Adam, the obedient Adam. So what was stolen was what we owed to God, honor and obedience. What did Christ do to restore or pay this back? What was owed, how was it restored? It was restored through what the New Testament speaks about as a sacrifice. And the letter to the Hebrews deals with sacrifice in greater detail than any other part of the New Testament and actually pays a lot of attention, first of all, to Christ as a priest, as the one who's qualified to offer sacrifice uh, because he's of the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it takes up the question of, of sacrifice really directly only in chapter eight, of, apart from those first verses where it talks about him having made purification for sins. Hebrews 8.3 says, every high priest, which it's been speaking about at length, Christ being, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary 
for this priest, Christ, also to have something to offer. And then after going in chapter 9 into the place where he offers sacrifice, in chapter 10, the author takes this question up again. He says, beginning in verse 4, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And as you brothers know that in the, the version of Psalm 40 that this is quoting that we're used to, it says here, either in the Hebrew, either my ear you have pierced or possibly ears you have dug for me. None of the texts that we know of, either in the Hebrew or in the Septuagint, actually say a body you have prepared for me, but the author of the letter to the Hebrews does. Maybe he was working off a different text, and if he was, maybe that is what suggested this passage to him. But what he says here is, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And of course, for us, that naturally makes us think in the literal sense of the incarnation. You prepared a body for me. It wasn't sacrifices and sin offerings. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sins that you were interested in, but you prepared a body for me. Burn offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the, the law, the old covenant law. Then he added, Lo, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first, in other words, these animal sacrifices, in order to establish the second. What's the second? It's, lo, I have come to do your will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what's he offering? He's offering the body, but what's the point of the body? Why does he need a body? He needs a body like ours to live the life that we have failed to live. At the heart of the offering that Christ made to the Father was not a death, but it was a life, as we're well familiar with. The, 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 the offering is a gift, and you're not offering a a death, you're offering a life made over to God. And what made Christ's life perfect was perfect love of the Father and perfect love of the brethren. What pleases the Father is not the offering of a bull or a goat, but the offering of a life. And in this sense, not just the cessation of life, but a life lived in perfection. John 14, verse 31. 
Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is in the, the Last Supper discourse. Before he, he goes to the final act of obedience, he says, I do what the Father has commanded me so that the world can see that I love the Father. That's the love of the Father. It's obedience. As Jesus says about himself, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And just before the beginning of this whole Last Supper discourse, before the washing of the feet, it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Either the end, meaning to the end of his life, the very last moment of his life, and you actually, you see that on the cross. Christ is loving the brethren, one of whom is his mother. Uh, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. One of the striking things is what, what the fathers made a lot of in that passage was keeping the commandment, honor your father and mother. From the cross, Christ was keeping the commandment to honor your father and mother by taking care of his mother and by putting his mother, honoring his, his disciple, maybe one of his closest disciples, with the presence of his mother after he had gone. So Christ loved them to the very last moment, but he also loved them to the furthest extent possible, and that's what he says in the Last Supper discourse. Uh, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So Christ has gone in perfect love of the Father, perfect obedience to the Father, and a life that he says manifests what love of the Father is. He always does what pleases him. John says in, uh, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8, and he loved his disciples perfectly. So what Christ paid to restore what had been stolen by the sin of man from God was the very thing that we had taken away from God, which is a life of honor for him, expressed in keeping his commandments, including the commandments on love of neighbor. But there's a kind of twist to the restoration. What Christ restored was not something lost to the Father. One of Joseph's other songs says, the righteous increase not his glory, nor may sinners diminish his praise. It's not as if the Father has lost something and now he sends his son, go get that back for me. But in fact, what's going on here is not a commercial transaction with the Father, but it's something else. What he's doing is restoring us. He's restoring the image of God in us. He's restoring the likeness to God, the blurriness of the image of God in us by sin is restored by Christ. Athanasius says in, uh, on the incarnation, and on the incarnation is really, we often think of it as connected to the feast of the incarnation, but most of what Athanasius talks about is actually Christ's cross and resurrection. He says, 
For as when the likeness painted on a panel has been effaced by stains from without, he whose likeness it is must needs come once more to enable the portrait to be renewed on the same wood. For for the sake of his picture, even the mere wood on which it is painted is not thrown away, but the outline is renewed upon it. It's, It's interesting. He says, when you want to restore this painting, what you need is the painter to come and redo his work. And he doesn't throw it away. He fixes it. In the same way, also the most holy Son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to our region to renew man once made in his likeness and find him as one lost by the remission of sins. As he says himself in the Gospels, I came to find and save the lost. So what I did not steal, what I did not take away from the honor of God, Christ says, yes, I now must restore. And in restoring that, what he restores is our life. What he gives back to us is the likeness of God in us us by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he can do it because it's in him that we were made in the beginning. And the conclusion for us then is to do exactly what Jesus says in one of the most striking stories in the New Testament. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God what has God's image on it. Words from the Brothers was produced by the Servants of the Word, a brotherhood of celibate men that is part of the Soul of the Spirit, an international ecumenical network of covenant communities. For similar and other content, please visit us on www.servantsofthewords.org. If you liked what you listened to, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcasting apps.